Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello and a warm welcome to you all. My name's Peter Moore. This week is Remembrance Week. And every year on Travels Through Time, we try to honour those who sacrificed their lives in war so that we can live in peace today. We've had episodes in recent years with Damien Lewis and Robert Sackville-West, and today I'm going to be talking to the best-selling historian, James Holland. James Holland's work on the Second World War is a huge inspiration. Many people know him from his books on Malta, the Battle of Britain, the Sicily Campaign. These are books full of depth and range and detail. More still, I think I've become familiar with his work recently through a fabulous podcast he makes with Al Murray called We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James has a great gift for bringing the past to life. And the other day I spoke to him about his latest book. Brothers in Arms follows one regiment, the Sherwood Rangers, from the Normandy beaches on an exhausting, bloody, but ultimately successful campaign that takes them into Germany in 1945. I began by asking James about one of the central characters in Brothers in Arms, a fascinating figure called Major John Semkin. James Holland, welcome to Travel Through Time. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. You interviewed a World War II veteran called John Semkin. Can you tell us a little bit about that interview and what made it so special? Yes, well, thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, always lovely to be talking about John Samkin, um, about who uh, about whom I was incredibly fond, although I didn't know him terribly well. I, yes, I went with David Christopherson, who is the son of Stanley Christopherson, who was with the Sherwood Rangers for most of the um, most of the Second World War, and indeed was the commanding officer for for much of the last period, the last year of the war, um, which is a bit I was writing about in Brothers and Arms, and. We were editing his diaries, and David's a great mate of mine. I've known him for many years, and he's a, just a lovely, lovely guy, um, and, and clearly a chip off the old block of his father, who was incredibly well known a bit for his his charm and you know how delightful he was and intelligence and all those sort of things. Um, and so we went to see John Semkin, and, and and Semkin was was clearly rather in awe still of of Stanley and and what he had achieved as commanding officer of the Sherwood Rangers. Um, but I, for one, was definitely very much in awe of, of John Semkin because I think, um, you know, the responsibility on the shoulders of those guys was just these squadron commanders. I mean, he was 23 in 1944. You know, he, he, he'd he already been a veteran of the Battle of Alamein. Um, he'd fought all the way through North Africa. Um, incredibly bright guy, and that was really obvious. But it was also clear that that the war was still something that he hadn't ever got rid of he hadn't sort of shaken out of his out of his system at all and and I, I would say of all the many interviews I've done with Second World War veterans he's definitely in the top four or five of most memorable for all the stuff he kept saying and 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 one of the stories I remember him saying was was that that you know they've been in the line basically you know from from D-Day until some 13th of June so best part of a week and obviously before that, they'd been on the landing craft waiting to go across the English Channel in, and, and then subsequently did in this incredibly terrible weather. And by the time they were finally pulled out of the line, which was only a few miles back, they were put into an orchard, a sort of tents in an orchard. And he said, even though there were some medium gums hammering away, 
nearby, literally in an orchard just a couple of hundred yards away. Um, he um, he slept for 14 hours straight through, despite the boom of the guns. That's how exhausted they were. And it was, a, it was you know, a, 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 a really, it was just common that I don't know why it sort of that particularly stayed in my mind, but it just did, I think, because, you know, we've all had days where we've sort of, not, you know, had a bad night the night before and not slept very much. And it makes us feel a bit sort of, you know, short-tempered yeah. and a bit kind of, you know, not on peak form. But imagine having to go through all that all that time and, and you know, still make decisions about which lives of your men depend. I mean, just quite astonishing. I wanted to start with him because he was one of the characters that really, um, well, I just found so mm. engaging um, in, yeah, in the, the book same. and um, was driven to, you know, kind of look a little bit more widely. And, and the way he spoke in older age, he, he seemed to have a very clear memory and a great analytical coolness, which I suppose um, even going on to his 80s and his 90s, explaining the events of, of D-Day through um, the, the, the next year, this was striking. But imagine at the time, these traits must have been absolutely fundamental to his survival and the success of the Sherwood Rangers. And I was wondering whether um, we could get back to a kind of, not quite a genesis moment, but if we are talking about, you know, this is a decade ago when you sat down to interview him, was this idea already in your head at that point for a book like Brothers in Arms? No, not at all. No. I mean, the only reason I was seeing him was because I was editing Stanley Christopherson's journals and diaries. Um, and I just thought it would be good to have some colour and some background and talk to some of the people that knew him because Stanley had died back in February 1990. Um no, not at all. The only reason I came to write the book was because we were suddenly in lockdown. The book I was supposed to be doing, I couldn't do because I couldn't get to any archives. I couldn't travel. Um, but the archive I needed to get to for um, Sherwood Rangers was uh, up in Carlton in Nottingham. And, and you know, it's a little sort of semi-private archive, really. And they weren't so worried about COVID restrictions. And and so I was able to get up there. And I already had a lot. You know, I had a lot of, of material but from, from when I'd done the Normandy campaign, but also from... Um, people that sent me stuff on the back of Stanley's diaries coming out and, and so on and so forth. So I had a head start and I thought, well, you know, in a time of lockdown, this is, this is a perfect project to do, but I'm, you know, unbelievably glad that I did. I really enjoyed writing a book more and, and to get inside the heads of some of these characters, was just, just fascinating. And to look at something in kind of a sort of semi forensic detail. And I think, you know, one can see the Sherwood Rangers yeomanry, um, the, the unit, which I was writing about and which John Semkin served as a sort of leitmotif for the British Army in the Second World War, you know. So, I mean, they, you know, they start as yeomanry. British Army is 100% mechanised, professional army is, but, but you know, the yeomanry don't really count. They're still on horseback. And Sherwood Rangers go off to Palestine in January 1940 with their horses. You know, they're involved in a sabres-drawn cavalry charge against Arab insurrectionists, you know, in the first part of that year, then get, then get their um, horses taken away from them. They're, they're retrained as artillery. Um, then eventually they get mechanized um, from the autumn of 1941 onwards. And they first go into battle in at Alam Halfa in the summer of 1942. And, you know, and they're still pretty bad. You know, they're, they're kind of, it's balaclava charges. It's kind of, you know, it's not quite sabers drawn because they're now in tanks, but it's the same principle. Uh, and, you know, they're just, they've got a lot to learn. And I, and I think, you know, you can divide the British Army in the Second World War for sort of pre-August 1942 and post-August 1942. Post-August 1942, they're really sort of getting themselves together and working out what it is they need to do and how to operate and how to make the most of their strengths and and and, and limit the, the weaknesses. And I think you can see that with Sherwood Rangers. 
Um, and the interesting about John Samkin is, you know, he's there from, you know, he's almost one of the originals. I mean, he, he goes out in 1940, you know, so does Stanley Christopherson. You know, these are guys who've been absolutely around the block. You know, they've set off, you know, they've begun their war on horseback and they've ended it kind of, you know, spearheading the army's advance into Germany in May 1945. And, you know, that what, what a fascinating journey. It is. And there's a nice moment of symmetry on D-Day when Stanley Christopherson ends up again on horseback yes. in Normandy, cantering yeah. down the uh, the little lanes. Is yeah, that right? it's hilarious. Um, well, that's a really beautifully pragmatic answer about lockdown and the availability of sources to a historian, because um, <laughs> we shouldn't over-glamorise the writing process. You have to go where you have um, some availabilities. But let's talk a little bit more about the makeup of the regiment, because this is important grounding just before we sure. we, we get going. You've got a chapter on this in the book, which which sets things out for the layperson like myself. And um, Well, I wanted to do that, because, we, because I think one of the problems is, is particularly when you're reading history books, you know, what the, the reason why vast majority of people want to read a history book is because they want to be completely enveloped in the human drama of a period that's not so very far away, particularly in the case of the Second World War. And yet you find with a lot of these 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 books, there's a huge amount of assumed knowledge that everyone understands what a brigade is or what a regiment is or what a division is or, you know, what all the nomenclature is and, and so on. So I always try and kind of explain stuff as much as I possibly can. And that was the yeah, reason well, we're doing that, largely because you know, when I started doing it, I didn't really know what, what how an armoured regiment worked either. So well, we're talking about 700 people in total, yeah, more or less, in the Sherwood Rangers. Yeah, yeah. And and of those who are actually, um, I mean, it's it's divided up in various ways, which I'll let you explain in a moment. But the tank is the thing that I want you to talk about a little right. bit as well, because the Sherman tank is just the... I, I, would it be going too far to say it's the avatar of the of uh, of the Rangers at this point? Yeah, I, th- I think I think the Sherman tank is is a rather sort of underappreciated tank because people tend to kind of think of it in terms of sort of you know when you're when you're doing tanks you tend to kind of think of it in terms of sort of top trump scores and you kind of think you know who's got the biggest armor who's got the biggest gun which is the biggest tank and you know so you, people are drawn to the German tiger and king tiger and all the rest of it and the poor old Sherman gets a bit of a gets a bit of a bashing but what people forget to realize is that is that numbers count for a huge amount um uh, and also it was incredibly maneuverable um had an incredibly fast rotating turret it was the only gun with a gun stabilizing gyro which meant you could fire it on the move more accurately than anything else it could reverse and forward go forward as quick as pretty much any tank apart from possibly the, the British Cromwell you know, and all these are incredibly important advantages. And because it fired a 75 millimeter gun, that was quite easy to handle. You know, 75 millimeter shell is is big, but it's not as big as an 88 millimeter, which is what a tiger's firing, for example. So you can you can physically one man can shove it in the breech of a of a of a of a, of, a, of the gun quite easily compared to an 88 millimeter, which is a bit more of a faff because it's so much bigger. You know, and and therefore it's longer and it's wider and it's heavier and all those sort of things which means you can your rate of fire is incredibly quick all of which counts for a huge amount uh, it has its shortcomings but but you know by and large it's very very good you know it's very mechanically reliable which is incredibly important when you're in the heat of battle you don't want something conking out on you and you don't want to lose large numbers of your strength just by mechanical failure so it ticks a huge amount of boxes um, and, and it had a synchromesh gearbox, I think you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah it has nice, a basic synchromesh gearbox. You know, anybody who can drive a car, could. anyone can drive a car, can drive a Sherman tank. I mean, I've done it. It's really, it's really not difficult at all. It's literally first, second, third, fourth, reverse. You know, and and you steer with levers. So, but so it's you know that's perhaps the only change. But otherwise, the principles are all the same. All the all the foot pedals are in exactly the same place as a car. Um, you know, so it, so there's, there's lots to like about it. And and so the Sherwood Rangers are equipped with this. And have been since um, the late autumn of 1942, and 
you know, it's 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 a very very good tank. You know, rather underappreciated, I think. Okay, Dicky. Um, the other two are Churchills and Cromwells, aren't they? Yep. Would, how how would we imagine the kind of division between different? Um, would it be um, that most of them were Sherman tanks and were a, f- a sprinkling of others? Is that the way to think of it? Yeah. So the the Americans were were able to kind of produce vast numbers of these. So you know, a kind of sort of conversation is had. And although British uh, are developing the Churchill and the Cromwell, the Churchill is 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 very good at certain things. It's got very very good frontal armor. It's it's slow, but it it can literally call up anything you can sort of bash through trees and hedges and all sorts of stuff so so it's okay but 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 there just aren't enough numbers of them and and you know the british, british and the americans you know they're grown-ups having conversations and and the americans are producing vast numbers of sherman so the british say well look you know our industry is obviously not as, as extensive as yours you know we'll concentrate on other things if you you're happy to kind of do the bulk of the tanks that's entirely reasonable conversation. I mean, that's fine, uh, and so that's 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 what happens. I mean, you would never have a mixture of tanks in a, a, a main tank in a. You wouldn't have sort of one squadron with Cromwells, one squadron with Churchills, one with Shermans. They'd all they'd all have the same. So the makeup of the of the Sherwood Ranges is that you have your three main squadrons, which are A, B, and C, each of nineteen tanks each, nineteen Shermans, of which four are Sherman Fireflies. And the Firefly is a much bigger gun. So it's a 17-pounder anti-tank gun put into it. And and that that fires at a, a velocity which is on a par, if not greater than that of the German 88mm. And velocity is the key thing. So that's the speed with which the projectile moves across the air. And a 17-pounder can do about 3,200 feet per second. So that's, that's, that's comfortably over a kilometre a second. You know, so it's packing mm. a massive punch. Whereas a 75 millimeter Sherman tank is more like about 2,200 feet a second. So we think of um, D-Day now as a, as a great logistical operation mm. to get as many people, um, you know, as many hobnail boots as possible onto those Normandy beaches. But really, we should think of the tanks as well as being um, absolutely vital component in here. And that does present some logistical challenges, to put it mildly, to um, transport these across the English Channel and um, get them safely onto the beaches. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in a, in a moment. And um, I think this is probably a good time for me to put the question to you that we put to everyone who comes on this podcast, which is, uh, if you could travel back through time, James Holland, which calendar year would you very much like to visit? Well, I thought long and hard about this, and this is a really, really difficult one, because actually I'd quite like to go back to 1805 and Trafalgar year and all the rest of it. Um um, and I'd also really, really like to go back to 1940, but I have chosen 1944 um, because I got so sort of enmeshed with the lives and experiences of the Sherwood Rangers. There's so much I'd just love to, I'd love to be a fly on the wall witnessing what they went through. Hmm. Lots of turning points in the Second World War. We can't get into all of them today, but by 1944, it's fair in a very broad sense to say that the, you know, the kind of the force or the momentum is very much with the Allies. And um, before the landings in June, though, would you say there was any expectation that within a year Adolf Hitler would be dead, that the Nazis would have crumbled, that the war would be over in Europe? Is would would anyone have envisaged such a a speedy campaign towards the conclusion in Europe, at least, to the war? Yeah, I think they are. I think they're all thinking, you know, let's get over in a matter of months. Um, uh, I, I really think, you know, having the war done and dusted in Europe at any rate by Christmas is a, is is perceived to be a, a very realistic situation. I mean, what one has to remember is, is the Germans are absolutely on their knees by this point. You know, they're they're, they're broken. You know, they're economically broken. Uh, um, their cities are broken. They've lost the cream of their manpower. 
they're hemmed in on all results. And by any stretch of imagination, that would be enough to make people throw in the towel. I mean, one has to remember that in November 1918, the Germans uh, and the Austrians, you know, they surrender because they're running out of cash um, and they're not going to win. Well, you know, you can argue that that situation has arrived for Germany in as early as September to November 1941, when Barbarossa hasn't hasn't succeeded. And yet they keep going. And, and that's that's the difference. You know, that's the difference between Japan and, and it's the difference between Nazi Germany compared to kind of earlier national and international conflicts. You know, Hitler's vision for the world is 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 one that is not logical. You know, it, 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 it's very little gray area. It's, it's either going to be the thousand year Reich or it's going to be complete Armageddon. And, and if it's not going to be the thousand year Reich and, and that means complete destruction of Germany, so be it. But you don't give up. Uh, and I think the Allies, having had so much success and having had, you know, got got the um, got the Germans on the run, so to speak, and, and with Germany entrenching, they were reasonably confident that they could kind of, you know, ram it home. And particularly once the Normandy campaign was over by the by the third week of August, you know, it's like you know, two armies completely destroyed. You know, Operation Bagration on the Eastern Front. You know, the whole of Army Suit Center smashed. I mean. Rome had been captured on the 4th of June in Italy. You know, what is the point? Why are you still fighting? It's, it's going to get you absolutely nowhere, but cause more pain and misery. But that's not Hitler's way, of course. You know, he's a, he's a unique character in history. And, and so, the, so the fight continued and, and fought to the bitter end. And they just, you know, they weren't quite able to do it. And one of the reasons they're not quite able to do it is because, you know, they, the ally, Western allies and, and indeed the, the Soviet Union as well, you know, they're, they're so dependent on mechanization. And, and it's, it's, Old campaigning seasons still count for a huge amount. And, and you know, the winters of the Second World War were particularly bad and bitter and brutal and cold and muddy and wet and all those sort of things. And very easy to defend and, and very hard to attack in those conditions. So I'm talking to you from near Hammersmith, where the old St. Paul's Boys School was. And this is where in, I think, about the 15th of May, they had... Uh, a quite a unique gathering of important people. There was um, the King, there was Churchill, there was Eisenhower, there was Montgomery, and they all um, agreed on the final details for for the operation that was going to follow in early June. It was literally the final sign off that that meeting. So the, so so yeah, you know, it's 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 uh, that was a big one. That was the point where Eisenhower sat there and said, "Anyone sees any problems with the plan, any flaw with the plan that we've got, put up your hand now, but don't come back to me later." Because and for counterfactual no- novelists, that's a good opportunity for an alternative plot if a bomb had gone off there, because it would have been yeah, um, <laughs> quite a thing. I think. And if we were to imagine about that time, where would the Sherwood Rangers have been, say mid-May? So they would have all been getting ready for, for their, their their final camp. So they'd be down in Hampshire by that point, and um, they're 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 getting ready to go into their yeah into their final after that meeting. Basically, that's that's when they all go into what they're known as sausages, which is the uh, the final camps, the sort of cordoned off camps before um, before they all embark on their landing landing um, landing craft. Seems quite a homely, a descriptive term for what was what was going what was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I know. So they were split up actually because B and C squadron, which was which were going to be in the front first wave, and they were going to be in the DD camps, DD tanks, these duplex drive Shermans, these swimming tanks that were supposed to launch um, from their landing craft uh, tanks, these sort of fifty meter long landing craft. Um, straight into the sea, and they're supposed to do it from seven thousand yards out. That was the idea, and they were they were due to land ahead of everybody else, along with the engineers, and then the infantry would come up behind. So the infantry would have fire support on the beaches before before they actually landed. That was the idea behind it. Um, so A and B squadrons, uh, sorry, B and C squadrons were already um, they were they were in a different camp. They were um, right down near um, uh, right on the Solent. 
um, um, near Forley, that kind of neck of the woods, and then okay. um, A Squadron, which was the other fighting squadron, the other saber squadron, and the and headquarters and all the um, uh, and all the, the the echelons, which is the support troops, of which were amount to more than fifty percent of the of the entire regiment. They're uh, they're they're in a different place, but but also near Southampton. What what kind of intelligence would they have about what's going to happen? Are they in complete ignorance of the of the big plan? Is it is it the case that um, very shortly before they embark, they're given a set of orders, and even then they're only partial? Yeah, no. At this point, they don't know where they're going to be. They know they're going to. They know it's going to be imminent. They don't know what the date is. They don't know where they're going to be landed. And everyone's guessing, of course. You know. Actually, it's quite easy to make a half decent guess. I think that it's going to be kind of Normandy region somewhere, either side of the Seine estuary, either north of the Seine or, or kind of where they actually do land. Because if you go to, by the time you get into Brittany, you're kind of getting pretty far out of fighter fighter cover range, which is essential, it's a prerequisite. Control of the skies and fighter range, you know, supporting the natural landings and seeing off any um, enemy air attacks, that's absolutely vital. Uh, further north than that, further north of the Seine and and you know Le Havre and all the rest of it. Well, you know you're you're starting to get it gets a bit cliffy up there and and also it's it, the Atlantic Wall, the so-called Atlantic Wall, the the German defences along the uh, along the crust along the coast. You know they get stronger and stronger and stronger, uh, and it's very unlikely to be the Pas de Calais because it's just you know German defences there are too strong. Um, and, and further south in Brittany, that's out of the question. And in, in Holland, it seems unlikely because you know you've got problems with flooded terrain and all the rest of it so you know i, I don't reckon it takes too much to work out where, where it's going to be but okay. you know they don't know you, you you can't that you're only guessing um and it's not until they're on board their landing craft that they're given the details perfect segue into where we're going to go for our first scene so you have given me tuesday the 6th of june which is a date which will spring alarm bells in many in many minds uh, we're going to go to gold beach in normandy yep. and and you're going to tell us i suppose what's happening with the sherwood rangers and i should also preface this uh, this scene with with a statement you make in the book which is it's almost impossible to say anything with any accuracy about what happened on d-day morning but let's give it a go shall we what, what's yeah, I think on? I was sort of slightly covering my ass on that one, to be perfectly honest, because actually I think it's 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 much easier to be um, clearer than it than it was. I mean, what I didn't realise when I first went into this it was just what a sort of um, how much is up in the air about exactly when people landed and the timings and all the rest of it. Interestingly, Bo, there uh, there is a national collection of aerial photography which is up in Scotland, and you can you know for twenty five quid a year you become a member, and then you can see all these amazing photos from these. Are these the ones that are in the front of the book? Exactly that. Yeah, and and no, so no, you can no, see no, tanks no. on 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 the ground. And if you know when the photographs are taking, that starts to unlock quite a lot. Um, and one of the big controversies is uh, was this, uh, and basically none of it happened as it was supposed to happen. So what so what was supposed to happen was was the the beach was divided up into into jig and red sectors, and there were two. You know the the the, the German defences are not continuous. So so what you've got is you've got these strong points which are or Widerstandnester as the Germans called it or WN. And they're all numbered, and they go sort of roughly chronologically along along the coast from east to west. So what you've got here is sort of 36, 37, up to kind of 40-odd. And the strong points tend to be around obvious exit points from a beach, so a road, yeah. a village, or whatever it might be. But in between, you know, we're just with sand dunes or whatever, there's, there's not a lot. There's just mines and wire. So what you've got to do is in your landing is you've got to neutralize these strong points that there are. And the, the basically the attacking infantry units don't land where they're supposed to. They're down much further, further east than they're supposed to. The only people that land exactly pretty much where they, they're supposed to is some of the um assault engineers 
and B Squadron of the Sherwood Rangers. Now, the Sherwood Rangers were supposed to land first, but when they got there, the weather was so bad, it was absolutely clear to all that if you let them out of these DD tanks, or, you know, Sherman tank weighs 30 tonnes, into a swell that is cutting across the angle of where they're trying to advance, uh, you've got a westerly and you're going south, they're going to get swamped yeah. very, very quickly and sink, and they're going to be no good to anybody, and you're going to kill lots of people. So clearly, letting them out at 7,000 yards isn't going to happen. The problem is, though, is you've got these landing craft, which are incredibly flat-sided and very shallow draft. So when you're trying to maneuver them close to the shore, what's going to happen is you're losing power because you're going slower. The winds are hurtling across the uh, uh, 90 degrees to the direction which you're flowing, and you've got these straight metal sides and no no keel, really. And so what's going to happen is they're going to, the wind is going to push them 90 degrees. And what's then going to happen mm-hmm. is you're going to have then a wall of landing craft blocking the smaller landing craft with the infantry in. So the only way to get around this is to actually come in second behind the infantry instead, which involves going close to the shore and then circling round. And in the course of circling, the landing craft assault, the LCAs with the infantry in, then come in ahead of you. But what that means is for the infantry, they're looking, for anyone looking out, what you're seeing is lots of tanks going in the opposite direction. In but is it, is this is all improvised. This is improvised this in is the impro- moment rather so than a plan something has, a, You know, a bad weather plan has been put in. It, it, it's been the decision yeah. of the naval officers in cahoots with the with the squadron commanders of the Sherwood Rangers to make okay. this decision. And it's undoubtedly the right decision. But what it means yeah. is that the, the Sherwood Rangers are landing, instead of landing at 725, they're landing at more like 740, 745, 750, something like that. And B Squadron is landing completely separately from the infantry who have been pushed far to the west because they're in even smaller boats, which are even more likely to be blown away. And so the Hampshires, for example, are landing much, much further, you know, a sort of, you know, a thousand yards further up to the east. And so they can't see the tanks. But equally, B Squadron, when they land, can't see any infantry either. Uh, and, and the okay. whole point about armor and, and infantry is that it works together. And so on this particular instance, it doesn't. And a lot of B-Squadron um, have, have problems. And the interesting thing is, is one can start to identify individual tanks from these photographs. So the one that's closest to this strong point, um, WN-37, and the key feature of this one is that it's got a it's got a French anti-tank gun, captured French anti-tank gun, in its embouchure, which is facing down the length of the beach, not out to sea, but down the length of, of, of the uh, of the beach. And it's got a it's got enough leeway in it to be able to hit the lateral road, which is about I don't know, kind of you know, two hundred yards further south of the beach, but runs parallel to the beach. So no one can go along that road until that gun is moved, is is taken out, and no one can really operate freely along the beach either until that gun is taken out. But the big question is: so this is a central so, so focusing this is a problem. Central focusing yeah, problem. Yeah. Yeah, but also there's been much debate about exactly when this gun was taken out, and actually it wasn't taken out by a tank; it was taken out by. Um, um, a sexton, which is a Sherman chassis with a 25-pounder field gun in it instead of a, you know, a turret with an ordinary gun. And it's uh, uh, taken out by a, a, a sexton of the of the Essex Yeomanry. We never knew until these photos were revealed exactly when it happened. But we now know it must have taken place between 11 and 11.30, probably more like 11 and 11.15. Because there's photographs which are taken somewhere between 11.30 and 12, which clearly show vehicles on that lateral road, and they wouldn't be on that lateral road were it not for the fact that that gun was already taken out. 
Do you have any descriptive um, accounts of the the gun being taken mm. out? Was it was it a single shot or was it a barrage of continuous fire? No, it was two. What so happened? what happened was the, the the guy in the Sergeant Palmer, the Bob Palmer, the guy who was in the in the, the commander of that particular sextant, hurtled forward and about 300 yards away, maneuvered the sextant, because it doesn't have a rotating turret, uh, maneuvered the the sextant by about 45 degrees, pointed it straight at it, and just fired in quick succession several rounds. And, you know, a decent 25-pounder crew can fire very, very quickly. And the first one hit just above the embouchure, and the second one was just direct hit, and it was just, you know, it's just an amazingly accurate but lucky fluky skilled whichever one you uh adjective you want but 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 it did the job and so so took it out um and that gave everyone a lot of freedom of maneuver so if we were to do a bit of um distillation we have landing in poor weather um you know got a very poor weather we have the fog of war we have dispersed um troops And you have enemy fire coming down onto the beach. I, I know um, this is again from Semkin who said they took terrible losses coming onto the beach. I wanted to ask you a supplementary question, which again might be um, obvious to some people. How do you get tanks from the landing craft onto the beach? Is is there a specific um, method for doing that, or was it very well? In the case miss? of the B and C squadrons, these were these DD tanks. So for the most part, they were being let out, but they were being let out really, really close to the shore. And they, and they all, okay. you know, most of them, I think, I think they, they lost. And they could tolerate that. Maybe five in total, I think, to, across both squadrons were yeah. sank, but the rest all made yeah. it. Some landing craft from Sea Squadron actually took them straight onto the shore. They did take them straight onto the shore. So, so it's a question of just driving it straight on the beach. Ram comes down, off you go, just, just straight out. And then A Squadron, which is the third squadron of 19 German tanks, they also land in, in, in Jig Red, which is a section of Gold Beach a bit further up. And uh, and they are all landed straight onto the beach. So what happens is your landing craft just basically drives straight for the beach, lures a ramp, gets stuck on the beach, and then when the tide comes in, they've got enough water to then pull back again. Did they have any shelter from the enemy fire when before they had neutralised that one gun, or were they completely, exposed, completely exposed to? Completely exposed. So I talked to a guy called Bert Jenkins who was in. Monty Hawley's tank, and and they were hit. They were hit by that that gun, and he was the only guy in his crew who survived. A crew of five in a Sherman. He was the only one who survived. Could you tell us how many casualties they sustained? Was it? Substantial? I think it was about forty casualties in total on on the day. Um, there's only that many killed actually on D Day. Maybe nine or ten actually killed. I think on day. So you know the casualties weren't that high in the big scheme of things what one has to remember with 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 armored regiments though is it's accumulative you, you know you start sort of you, if you if you think that you're 688 in your regiment only 327 are in tanks um sherman's plus the four man crews of the 11 rec- 11 tanks in the in the recce squadron which is which are driving stewards which are much lighter tanks and only four man these, these are the honeys so you know that's that's fifty two percent which are not in tanks, and then if you think you know of those, there's thirty six officers in a regiment, armored regiment, and you think just by the Normandy campaign alone, forty four of those officers are casualties. And that's more than one hundred percent of your officer forces casualties. I think one hundred seventy five other ranks are lost in that time. So, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at really, really high levels of casualties. And as I say, you know, on any given day, you know, nine or 10 dead out of 688 isn't very many. Even nine 
nine or ten dead out of 327 isn't very many but but it's the accumulation that's that's the problem and, and the and the truth of the matter is is that if you're in the Sherwood Rangers and you were landing on D-Day your chances of still being standing on 8th of May 1945 when the war comes to an end was statistically zero you know that's quite sobering I mean there isn't a single tank in the Sherwood Rangers that doesn't get hit you know, so it's um, it, you are going to get hit at some point, and 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 you know whether you die or whether you're lightly wounded or or, or whether you're badly wounded or whether you get through unscathed is just really in the lap of the gods. I know that you came to the, the Rangers through Stanley Christopherson originally. What was he up to at this point? Was he there on the beach? Yeah, so he's kind of directing... so he was he was a squadron commander and on that day and had been for for a couple of years already. So he's landing, you know, between nine and ten. That's when A Squadron are landing on Jig Red, and we know exactly. You can actually pinpoint to kind of, you know, within fifty yards exactly where they came ashore. Uh, again, through the combination well, of Google sometimes... Earth and, and the original photographs and photographs that were taken on the day, plus the aerial photographs, all that, you can absolutely pinpoint it. But I would have just loved to have been a witness to it. I'd love to have seen just how much smoke and confusion there was. You know, how much fog of war was there? Yeah. What was it really like? What was the noise like? I mean, just to have witnessed that must have been incredible. And and to have been anywhere, I think uh, let's say um, eleven twenty eight when Sergeant Palmer yeah, took his exactly. shot. That well, would I'd probably be to, as I'd good as anywhere for the minute when that happened. Not not just a sort of guesstimate of some loose half oh, well. hour. Maybe there's some more evidence Maybe. to be discovered Maybe. one day. We never know. Hello, it's Peter here. If this week's episode has inspired you to go on your own search for hidden stories through time, why not try a trip organised by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours, covering subjects from archaeology and history through to music, art and wildlife. Ace have over 60 years of experience in group travel. From tales of smugglers and stonemasons on the Romney marshes to cultural exchanges along the Silk Road, there are plenty of departures on offer in the UK, as well as further afield. Each tour is led and hosted by an expert lecturer who can often provide exclusive visits and will help you explore a subject in detail. Following a fantastic year with highlights including a musical cruise along the Danube, Ace are looking forward to more adventures in 2023. To find out more, or to request a copy of Ace's brand new brochure, you can visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Okay, let's move on then. We've got um, two more to go. So we've we've been there on uh, on Gold Beach on D-Day. Next, we are going to go to Monday the 26th mm. of June, a little bit further away. Do you want to tell us where we are and what's yeah, happening? Yeah, so the Sherwood Rangers have been caught up in this very sort of attritional battle in pretty much a sort of you know, three miles by three area, which is just on the kind of um, northern side of the Sewell River, all around villages of Saint-Pierre, Tilly-sur-Sewell, Christo, uh, the Bois de Boilande, and and uh, a couple of high points called Point 103 and Point 102. And it's a area of, of lovely rolling hills and orchards and, and farmland that would have been largely untouched for, for centuries. Um, until this sort of typhoon of steel suddenly hit it. And they're up against the Panzer um, and elements of the 12th SS. Um, Hitler Jugend Division, who are probably two of the, the best divisions that the that the Wehrmacht have in their arsenal. And, and certainly at the start of the of the D-Day campaign, you know, the, the Normandy campaign, 
both the Panzerlehrer and 12SS are in, you know, they're, they're bristling with weaponry and men and, and kit and all the rest of it, you know, so they're never more dangerous than, than at the start, but they've had this sort of attritional fight. And by the end of June, you know, Montgomery and uh, General Dempsey, the commander of British Second Army, are planning the first major um, Allied offensive in Normandy at that point. There's been lots of attritional fighting and just sort of gentle kind of nudging forward and all the rest of it. But, but Operation Epsom is the first major offensive mounted by the British. And it's been hurried up because ultra decrypts of um, uh, of German radio traffic have shown that the Germans are more panzer divisions arriving. And the plan is for them to kind of organize themselves and mass themselves into a uh, uh, into, into a kind of mass counterattack. And the idea is to try to trip those units as they're arriving into the battlefront before they have a chance to organize themselves. Um, and if they can get a breakthrough, then then great. But but the main thing is to stop the German chances of having any mounted, proper, fully fleshed um, counterattack. And as a precursor to that, there's Operation Martlet, which is launched on the 25th of June. And Martlet is just a kind of mile or two further to the west. And the idea is to try and draw off enemy troops away from the Epsom, planned Epsom battlefield, which is just to the west of the, the city of Caen, but also to gain some high ground, which is called the, the Roray Ridge. And it's not particularly high very sort of low shallow saddle but it's significant because obviously high ground from high ground you can then observe your enemy and all the rest of it and and you you can gain it for yourself but you can also deny it to the enemy so that's the reason for doing it uh, and and the Sherwood Rangers um the, the, where Martlet is happening is in the area where the Sherwood Rangers have been operating in tandem with the 49th um Polar Bear Division um which at the time when it first arrives into the battle on 15th of June is fresh to to combat they they done some garrison duty on Iceland before that, but that's basically it. And Martlet doesn't go as well as everyone hopes it, it hopes it would, but they're still pushing the enemy back. And again, they're coming up against Panzerlehr and elements of the 12th SS. So, you know, they've got, they're coming up against decent opposition, dug in with decent kit. And, and, you know, it's not really surprising that it doesn't work quite as successfully as it might have done. But on the 26th, the following day, the same day that Operation Epsom is being launched, just a couple of miles further to the east, they do start making some headway. And C Squadron of the Sherwood Rangers manages to take this key, cross this key road, and then take out a, 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 a little sort of triangular copse, which is full of machine guns. They take that out, and then they then subsequently push on further south and take this this farm, this key farm called St. Nicholas Farm, which is about a third of the way up towards the Rawray Ridge from their launch point in the village, smashed up village of Fontenay de Pesnel. And the idea is that once C Squadron has taken this farm, that A Squadron, now commanded by John Semkin, because the CO has been, the original CO is wounded on D-Day, then the second C, um, Mike Laycock, has been killed on the 11th of June. And so Stanley... This is what they call the Black, Black Sunday, Sunday, exactly, yes. So yeah. then... Stanley Christopherson then takes over as commander of the regiment, a post he continues to hold until the very end of the war. And John Sempkin is promoted to commander of A Squadron. And they're just moving up into this to take over from C Squadron and do this final kind of push on towards Aurora Ridge. When Stanley Christopherson is at a farmhouse on the other side of this road that they've just captured, looking down the Rue Monsieur in Fontenay-le-Pesnel, and he's in the track that's looking straight down this road when suddenly at the far end, a German Tiger tank turns into the road. And Stanley just thinks, I'm toast. That's it. But between him thinking that and then looking up again at the at the Tiger tank, John Semkin's Sherman turns into the Rue Massieu on his way to take, take command for the charge up towards the Rore Ridge. And so now John Semkin's Sherman is between Stanley Christopherson 
and the Tiger Tank. And by any reckoning, you know, if you lined up a Tiger Tanker and um, and a Sherman Tanker kind of 250 yards distance, the Tiger would win it every single day because it's got better armor and better gun. But it doesn't. And what's really interesting is, is Semkin is sufficiently experienced enough to know that what you've got to do is you've got to always move with one up the spout. What I mean by that is having a shell in the in the turret or you know in the in the breach already. So immediately he just says fire. It's an armor piercing round. It hits the gun mantlet of the of the tiger, which is the reinforced bit of steel at the base of the of the gun where the where the barrel of the gun enters the turret. A shard of that hits sprays off and, and hits the um the driver of the tiger tank. In the next 30 seconds, Semkin's tank gets off another nine rounds of high-explosive rounds, which are not armor-piercing, so they're not as penetrative, but they cause lots of damage and smoke and confusion. The thing about a tank is if you're a tank commander, you generally have to have your head above the turret because otherwise you can't see what's going on sufficiently. You do have periscopes, but they're, not just, they're just not good enough to be able to kind of see properly. So the moment you're hit, you then retreat inside your turret. And the moment you retreat inside your turret, you can't see very much, and you're surrounded by smoke, and your tank has been repeatedly hit, and you're 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 basically paralyzed. And in that and, and after the 10th round, the whole crew surrenders and bails out. And it's a great victory already and a great morale booster that John Semkin, a squadron commander, a, a, a leading figure in the Sherwood Rangers, can take out and best a mighty tiger tank at 250 yards or whatever. You know, that's a that that's an incredible thing. He then moves on and they then get ready for this charge, and the infantry are not forthcoming enough. So basically, he has to do an old school balaclava charge, which he's not interested in doing at all. But there is no choice. They've been ordered, they've got to take this ridge, so they've just got to go for it. So the way he positions his men is really good. So he said, Whatever you do, avoid an overlap. Don't ever have an overlap. So what I mean by that is you don't want to get a situation where you've got two tanks from a certain angle are doubling up, because that makes you a bigger, easier yeah. target. And between 7.30 and about 9.30 at night, the next two hours, they managed to knock out 13 enemy tanks for no loss of their own and take the ridge. And one tank, um, commanded by Sergeant George Dring, managed to destroy five, two Tigers, one Panther, which is only kind of, you know, not a few notches down from a, from a Tiger, and two Panzer Mark IVs, which is a sort of, you know, on par with a, a Sherman. I should ask you more about Dring because he's he is... I think you've described him as the number one tank destroyer, perhaps. Maybe we'll we'll do a bit of covering your ass again here again, but in the British Army. And I, I love this picture of him as the deer stalker. You describe him kind of getting out of the tank and like kind of going uh, like kind of along the lanes on his belly, trying to find out where they are, because of you, as you said before, um, you know, kind of the intelligence is the most difficult part, seeing where you're going to fire. Yeah, so Dring is a Dring. Five in yeah, one Dring, day. Dring is a countryman. He's from Lincolnshire. He, you know, he was an amateur jockey. He used to do, uh, um, you know, point to points and stuff. And he, you know, he can read the land very, very well. He's, he's, you know, he, he knows about the, the land and the soil and birds and animals and flora and fauna and all that kind of stuff. And, and his technique was because the problem is with a, with a tank, you know, you're, you, you want to hide yourself. But by hiding yourself, you then can't see your enemy. So what he would quite often do is park up his tank in a kind of, you know, where it had decent cover. And then he'd get out and stalk on foot. So he'd sort of creep and crawl along hedgerows and all the rest of it. And if he could see a tank, then he'd memorize exactly where it was, come back and then direct the fire straight onto it. Because the point is, is generally speaking, if you hit first, you're going to come out on top. Because, because this whole point of, of commanders retreating into their turrets the moment they're hit. So the key thing is to get away the first shot. And, and he felt that by stalking, he was going to get a better chance of doing that. 
and he's doing a bit of that on that day. Uh, and the shots he's firing, I mean, you know, he's he's hitting and knocking out tigers at kind of sort of fourteen hundred yards. I mean, that's you know, that's that's decent. I mean, fourteen hundred yards, you know, mile is seventeen hundred and thirty, isn't it? So, you know, yeah, the three quarters of a mile, that's 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 pretty decent effort with a seventy five millimeter. We put this into a broader context um, because you've done so much work on the Second World War, talked to so many veterans, studied so many archives. Where does this rank in a kind of leaderboard of extraordinary um, feats? Five tanks in one day from one person. There may well be others, I don't know, but but I, I think that you know it's right up there. I mean, you know, the British British way, the mm. Allied way, is not what to sort of keep personal scores and things. But yeah, it's a it's a it's an extraordinary achievement. It really, really is. You know, and 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 you. Mm. It's partly because of you know what you, what you get from the Sherwood Rangers at that point is you you get everyone who knows what they're supposed to do complete faith and trust in their commander very well trained you know decent training great gunnery massive tactical and situational awareness all those sort of things they're all coming together just at the right moment whereas what you find with the Germans they're they're a battle group and the Germans have been much lauded for their battle groups and their ability to create these kind of ad hoc formations just with a sort of you know the say so of a of a commander. Uh, and the idea of a battle group is that suddenly you 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 can bring in some infantry here, some tanks there, and some artillery there. You just put them together because they're so super disciplined. They'll just do what they're told, and they'll just gel immediately, even though they've never sometimes haven't ever operated together. But what you see at uh, the Royal Ridge that night is a is an example of where that doesn't work, because what you've got is you've got Tiger tanks. That's from one unit. You've got Panthers from another unit, Panzer Mark IVs from another unit, and they've all been cobbled together in this 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 um this battle group that's been created by Max Wuncher, who's a, quite a serious player in the 12th SS. And they don't know each other. They're obviously exhausted. The, you know, there's a total lack of coordination. And all the things that are, you can see the strength of the Sherwood Rangers on that day, and particularly of A Squadron on that in that evening attack, are absent in the Germans on that day. And that's, that's one of those occasions where this perceived tactical flexibility, which is seen as such a strength for the Germans, actually lets them down a bit. Let's go to your third scene then. We've got one more to look at. It's Christmas Day. It's a Monday. Yep. We're now in the Netherlands. Do you want to tell us what's going on with the Sherwood Rangers at this point? And um, whereabouts are they on this um, kind of well, So they're very, very close to the east. German border. They're in a place called Schinnen, uh, which is in, in the Netherlands. And um, the snow is on the ground and, and it's freezing cold. And they have just been in one battle after the other. Um, and the most recent one has been at Geilenkirchen, where they've been supporting the Americans um, of the 84th Railsplitters Division in a, in a terrible action in which it's just been mud, mud, mud. Lots of tanks have got bogged down. Lots of people have been killed and wounded. It's, it's a, it's a, I think they lose something like you know, 23 killed. Um, in the in the regiment, but out of three fighters, you know, out of three saber squadrons, that's a lot. You know, that's you know, that's five entire tanks. So, you know, that th- that is a lot. And before that, they've had you know long long months uh, up at Nijmegen. They've been part of Market Garden. Before that, they had another terrible battle um, at a place called Giel in Belgium. And before that, they had the march from Normandy. And before that, they had all the Normandy campaigns. So it's just, it's just the relentlessness of which they're in action is just incredible. And they're all knackered and they're all fed up and they're all tired. And, and yet there is still this incredible humanity within their ranks, which I just think is just amazing. And they have a kind of, you know, officers serving the men Christmas dinner, then they have their own dinner. Um, but the most touching thing, I think, is, is the fact that, that, 
they organize a, a show for the children, the Dutch children of the town of Shinnan. And so they get a, get one of the Stuart light tanks, the honeys, um, as the reindeer, and they fix up a sledge. And they have two guys, one who's very good at acrobatics from the Essex Yeomanry, and they have, uh, who's attached to the Shared Rangers, but they dress up and all the guys in the regiment have been asked to kind of save their sweet and chocolate ration for a, a few weeks. And so they've got this big sack of goodies and they drive the, the sledge into the into the middle of the town and sort of go yo ho ho and hand out all these sweets to the children and i just think it's it's just how, how can you how can you not be moved by these men these sort of incredibly touching thing that that despite their own privations despite their own difficulties they face and the losses they've had to come to terms with and the fact that yet again they're away away you know stanley christopherson writes you know this is my fifth christmas away <laughs> you know since the start of the war two in the Middle East, you know, um, two in Europe or whatever it was. I can't remember. Uh, um, you know, just, just extraordinary. And and yet they still find that, that they have the thought that someone has thought, you know, Stanley Christopherson and others have thought, this would be a nice thing to do. This would be a good thing to do. And I think it's it, it reflects so well on them and their, that despite all they've gone through, all the horrors that they've witnessed, they still haven't lost sight of their humanity at all. And I'd just love to have seen it. I'd love to have no, seen it's, it's an incredibly touching been scene. Been a, a witness to the to the banter in the in the in the dinners and the his, his Stanley's present was a was a carefully wrapped up packet of hardtack biscuits. <laughs> Had something to unwrap. <laughs> <laughs> I should I should ask a little bit about um because it it's sometimes easy to gloss over these things, but the culture within the Sherwood Rangers um, was obviously a hugely sustaining force throughout yep. these difficult months. Um, did the comedy keep going? Did people continue to laugh at the, at the, um, I suppose the outlandish situations they were finding themselves in? Was there any particular characters within the Rangers who were, who were very good at geeing people along? I know we have spoken about Stanley Christopherson before, and it seems that after he was promoted after that Black Sunday that we mentioned earlier. He seems to have a wonderful gift for keeping people motivated. And despite the fact he was writing all of these letters along the way, informing family members that, that their loved ones had died. I mean, do you want to talk about any any of the particular members? Yeah. Well, I think I think I think Stanley was very good at that. And it was interesting. You started off with that interview that I did with that conversation I had with John Samkin. I remember him just saying, you know, he always had a, a smile on his face. He, he was always laughing. I, I just don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did it. You know, he just kept saying this. And actually everyone we interviewed all said exactly the same. They all said that Stanley was amazing, that he was always smiling, that he always had a, you know, he was always laughing, always saw the funny side of things. Um, and I think a lot of the a lot of the Sherwood Rangers, you know, they're, they're people who probably wouldn't have been in uniform had it not been for the war. You know, they're, they're eccentrics and misfits and all walks of life and all the rest of it. And I think one of the common threads is, is, is a sort of is a sense of of the ridiculous and a, and a great sense of humour and, and a willingness to see the best in situations and a, a willingness to laugh. And, you know, they're helped along with by some great characters, whether it's Mickey Gold. Um, he's a sort of, you know, uh, um, a bit of a rogue, but 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 a very lovable one whether it's Stanley himself, um, people like Peter Soleri, who was just obviously just a, a real character, very sort of pompous and sort of um, uh, um, very sort of literate and, and very flowery in his language, but, but you know, great fun. 
through to you know people like Padre Skinner, Leslie Skinner, who was uh, yeah. the, the, the regimental Padre, and and was just a, you know an absolute rock. Um, Hilda Young, who was the the medical officer, you know these people really they really had all their men's backs, and uh, um, um, Skinner particularly, and and the, the regimental leadership of, of people like Stanley and and uh, and others, and Stephen Mitchell. I think they really really did a lot for. Of, on the pastoral care front um, and made sure their men were looked after and, and made sure they were watching them and, and trying to give them the best possible chances they could, but also try and keep the mood light. And I think, you know, you'd had Mike Laycott was a bit of a martinet um, before that, you know, you had others who were, I don't know, sort of on, on a different pedestal. I think what Stanley was able to do was sort of introduce a different style of leadership and a, a different style of command. Um, which was much more, you know, and he never had any issue with authority whatsoever, which was obviously absolutely vital. But I think, you know, he was just a, he was just a bit more human. Mm. You know, he, 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 he had that kind of remarkable combination of, of humanity, empathy, charm, humor, but with authority, you know, and, and very few people have that. We don't know who Father Christmas was. That's um, yes, yet. it was um, Neville Fern. I think it was Neville Fern. Well, it's he was in a squad. It's a great yeah, scene for us to put into people's imagination, and they can. They yeah, can, it's a rather lovely one. We'll, we'll leave it there. But um, I do have one last question for you, which is uh, the one we always conclude with, which is if you could go back to 1944 um, and take one physical object to bring back to have maybe as a talisman or a memento of this conversation is there anything you'd like in particular well i think it would be a big one um i think it would have to be a killer which is uh, george drings tank this is sherman tank and it's oh, called right. a killer because um james um uh, darcy anderson who was the um was the commanding officer for d-day got wounded on d-day so that was him gone but before d-day he insisted that all the tanks have names and he wanted the squadron names to begin with the letter of the squadron, but also reflects something from you know the classical times. And George Dring didn't know what to what to call his tank. And so um Stanley Christopherson, who was at the time a squadron commander, said, Well, why don't you call it Achilles? And um Dring had never heard of Achilles and didn't know how to spell it. And so they spelt it a killer. And then everyone ribbed him mercilessly when they realized what he'd done. He was mortified by this, but but Stanley said, No, 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 don't don't change it. It's absolutely perfect. And it was a killer that that um, was the, was the great tank that that achieved those five on the day? It's a, it's sure, a it's Sherman again, uh, and I'd just love to see it. I'd love to be able to drive it and go. Gosh, I'm driving in in a killer, and I'd also like to see what it was like inside and see whether they had any kind of personal pictures, oh, or notes, or anything, or whether it was as bare as all of the others. I've got this wonderful picture of you on the uh, somewhere on the Wiltshire lanes at the moment, going along in that Sherman. Do we know what happened to it at all? Is it is it documented or is it just vanishing to the mists of time? Into the mists of time. Yeah. Well listen, it's it's a story that's really touching at this time of year as we kind of come to Remembrance Day. It reminds us too of the great sacrifices that people made. Um it's it's a very tender book in many ways, but one which I think will remind us a lot about, you know, the kind of the human story. So James Holland it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for taking the time to come on Travel Through Time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to James Holland this Remembrance Week about the stories he tells in his latest book. Brothers in Arms is out in paperback right now. I began with a question about Major John Semkin, and I thought I'd conclude this episode with something he said 
as an old man shortly before his death in 2016 at the age of 95. D-Day, Semkin said, was the easiest day of a ghastly battle when Normandy became a battlefield and was converted into a charnel house for man and beast. And when we left Normandy, it was a horror. And of course, that was only the beginning of a journey anyway, through Belgium, Holland and into Germany. A journey of a thousand miles as the crow flies. And of course marked all the way by the graves of young men. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.